almost time, kids. The clock is ticking. Be in front of your TV sets for the horathon, and remember the big giveaway at nine. Don't miss it, and don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time. Happy Happy Halloween, everybody! Thanks for tuning into the Nasty Pasty once more as we bring to you another bonus episode to celebrate the spooky season in style. While we've covered the Halloween series in the past, and by that I mean the first two examples, what I've decided to tackle today on the spookiest day of the year is to tackle the entry in the series that probably polarises fans the most. Well, unless you include Halloween Resurrection, which I find to be utter garbage, but... Outside of that, Halloween 3 is one of the most criticised entries because, shock horror, it omits the sinister shape himself, Michael Myers, and instead focuses on a completely unrelated story. Let's dive straight into Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. California, around a week before Halloween, a scared man is pursued through the streets by several blank, suited pursuers, one of which grabs him and tries to strangle him. The man causes a car to run into his assailant and he escapes. Around an hour later, he stumbles injured into a gas station, gasping, They're coming, they're coming, before collapsing with a strange mask in his hand. 
Across town, Dr. Dan Chalice drops masks off for his children, only to find that they already have the very popular silver shamrock masks, as advertised on the TV. He's called into the hospital, which has just received the admittance of the terrified man, called Harry. Shortly after Chalice has him sedated, one of the mysterious suited men arrives at his room and kills Harry by driving his nose bone into his brain. Chalice chases after the assailant, only to see him in his car, where he soaks himself in gasoline and sets him ablaze. In the next few days, Harry's daughter Ellie arrives to identify the body, while the coroner is stumped at the autopsy of the assailant. Soon, Ellie visits Chalice personally, who tells her of Harry's paranoid behaviour and attachment. After doing some investigating, Ellie discovers that her father went to a nearby town called Santa Mira to collect the silver shamrock masks, an isolated Irish community who produced the largest amount of masks in the world. Deciding to pose as a married couple to gain information, Chalice confirms that Harry stayed there recently and meets store owner family the Kupfers, Buddy, his wife Betty, and their son Buddy Jr. When they finally gain access to their motel room, the pair kiss whilst a curfew is enacted in the town at 6pm. Chalice goes out to get a bottle of booze and meets a vagrant, who says that Cochrane is watching everyone in the town. After Chalice leaves to go back to the motel, the vagrant is killed by two of the strange-suited men, who pull his head off. Ellie also grabs a drink and meets Marge, who complains that one of the masks that she bought for her shop has had a piece fall off. Chalice phones the coroner, who claims that the autopsy was a failure due to there only being scrap metal brought to her. While Chalice and Ellie make love, Marge notices a piece of the mask on the floor and picks it up, noticing circuitry on the back. Picking at it with a hairpin, she's suddenly shocked when it discharges a laser into her face, severely burning her eyes and mouth, and strangely causing bugs to erupt from her face. A group of scientists, along with the factory owner, Connell Cochran, come and collect her body, claiming that it's due to a misfire. Ellie and Chalice arrive at the factory to inquire about Harry's order, only to meet Cochrane again, who offers them a guided tour along with the Kupfers. As the tour ends, Ellie notices her father's car, guarded by multiple strange men in the suits. At the motel, Ellie wishes to leave, but as Chalice tries to dial out in the main office, he's hit with an error message, and upon his return, he sees Ellie is now missing, as five of the mysterious men chase Chalice through the streets. He heads to the Silver Shamrock factory, where he's attacked by one of the suited men, whom he fights back, only to discover that it is in fact an android. Cochrane arrives and has Chalice taken to the final processing part of the plant, as dawn breaks on Halloween morning. Cochrane reveals a giant stone pillar, which is from Stonehenge, containing an ancient druidic power which is implanted into the masks via a silver shamrock chip. To demonstrate his plan, he has the Kupfer family transferred to a waiting room, where he plays his silver shamrock advert, which displays a flashing pumpkin icon. As Buddy Jr. is wearing his mask, he slumps to the floor suddenly, the mask beginning to rot. Betty faints as her son's head dissolves into a mess of bugs and snakes, one of which strikes and attacks Buddy, killing him. As Chalice is taken away to be restrained, kids all over the country don their silver shamrock masks in preparation for the commercial to be shown in the evening. The coroner tries to call Chalice again, but is soon killed by one of Cochrane's androids with a drill. As night descends, Cochrane reveals that he simply wants to bring Halloween back to its roots in the Celtic holiday of Samhain, with the sacrifice of children, before putting one of the masks on Chalice and leaving him to die with the television on. He manages to escape anyway and steals out of the room using the air vents. 
Locating Ellie, he frees her from her restraints and they infiltrate the final processing room. Discovering that the multiple boxes stacked around are full of loose silver shamrock chips, Chalice sneaks into the computer area and plays the advert on all the monitors. Taking a box of the chips, he dumps them into the computer area, where they activate and short-circuit all of Cochrane's robots, as well as the computers which go haywire. As the large fragment of Stonehenge begins to react with the advert, Cochrane sarcastically applauds as he's struck with the power of the rock and dissolved into thin air. The factory is destroyed in the chaos, with Ellie and Chalice driving away to safety. Suddenly, Ellie grabs Chalice and tries to strangle him, causing him to crash the car, severing her arm and revealing that she was in fact an android. With only ten minutes to go until the advert shows, he runs to the nearest gas station, the same one from the opening, and uses the payphone to convince all of the TV stations in the country to stop running the advert. Some trick-or-treaters walk into the gas station and begin switching the channels to find that the advert has been taken off the air. When one channel still appears to be running it, Chalice screams at them to stop it as the film ends. And don't forget to watch the big giveaway afterwards. Why, Cochrane? Why? Do I need a reason? Mr. Cupfer was right, you know. I do love a good joke, and this is the best ever. A joke on the children. But there's a better reason. You don't really know much about Halloween. You thought no further than the strange custom of having your children wear masks and go out begging for candy. It was the start of the year in our old Celtic lands and we'd be waiting in our houses of wattles and clay. The barriers would be down, you see, between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in to sit by our fires of turf. Halloween. The festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Sacrifices. A part of our world. Our craft. Witchcraft. To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. It's not so different now. It's time again. In the end, we don't decide these things, you know. The planets do. They're in alignment. And it's time again. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. And... Happy Halloween. I remember watching Halloween 3 as a child when it came onto the TV at some point... And I was already a fan of Halloween, as we'd had 1, 2 and 4 on VHS. So when number 3 came onto the screen, I was excited to see the usual stabbing and slicing and dicing up of teenagers. I distinctly remember waiting to see Michael Myers for most of it. And then I think by the one hour mark, I gave up hope that he was actually going to be in it. By that point, I didn't even know what the story was about, as I'd been too focused on trying to see Michael stalking in the background. 
After it finished, I only remembered some fleeting bits where there's some bugs and snake bursting out of someone's mask. I remember hating the film and never wanting to see it again. Of course, by the time I was a young man of 19 or 20 years old, I'd seen so many Italian non-sequels like Troll 2 or Zombie Flesh Eaters 3 that I simply cared way less about continuity in a film series. I gave it a rewatch, and I seriously enjoyed it. I still remember that feeling I had as a kid though, so I can completely understand and sympathise about why so many people dislike it. Back in 1981, when Halloween 2 had become just as popular and lucrative as the first instalment, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill were approached yet again for another sequel. Carpenter was famously ambivalent in his approach to write Halloween 2, so he was further reluctant to commit to writing yet another film. Though, after much coaxing, Hill and Carpenter agreed, on the the condition, that it did not continue the story established in the first two films. Instead, they wanted to create an anthology series, with unrelated stories that all revolved around the main theme of Halloween. Even though producer Irwin Yablans was against the idea of omitting Michael Myers, production went ahead regardless, with a budget of $2.5 million attached. The team hired Quatermass series writer Nigel Neal to write the script, whose initial draft was more of a psychological rather than visceral exercise. Dino De Laurentiis, one of the film's producers, did not like this approach, and insisted on more graphic violence to be included, leading Neil to have his name removed from the production when he was not satisfied with the changes. Tommy Lee Wallace, the film's director, then made some final edits, leaving around 60% of Neil's material in there. The final version of the script was carefully created with the first two instalments in mind, to keep themes and elements of the series cohesive. One of these elements was the idea of Halloween masks, specifically the three that feature in the final film, which consist of a skull, witch and jack-o'-lantern, of which the latter was an original creation. Specific scenes and references were purposely put in to homage the original two films, such as the shot of Chalice and the nurse looking at Harry in his bed, which compositionally mimics the shot of Mrs. Alves in Laurie's room from Halloween 2. The location of Silver Shamrock is in a location called Santa Mira, which is the town from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, a rather playful reference to the fact that Connell Cochran's henchmen are also fake human beings. Footage of the first Halloween film is featured twice, once while Chalice is drinking in a bar, and then once again when he's tied to a chair by Cochran. Chalice prescribes Thorazine to Harry when he begins to panic in a hospital, a reference to Nurse Chambers from the first film who prescribes the same drug to Michael. And around the same time, a nurse refers to a Dr Castle, a clear nod to Nick Castle who played Michael Myers during the first film. In another visual reference, Chalice throws his mask onto a camera to cover his escape, causing Cochrane and his men to see only the eye sockets, reminiscent of the opening of Halloween, where we see Michael's point of view shot as he murders his sister. Even the film's opening, where a digital image of a pumpkin is slowly revealed line by line, is stylistically similar to the openings of the first two films, which show a jack-o'-lantern being slowly zoomed in on. The only thing that differs is Carpenter's soundtrack, which consists of long electronic vibes punctured by high-pitched bleeps and almost vibrating tones. It's a far cry from his iconic theme of the first two films and the subsequent movies, but it's still rather appropriate to the tone and its more computer-reliant themes of the film. Another frequent memorable musical addition is the Silver Shamrock Jingle, played no less than 14 times during the film's runtime. It's played to the tune of London's Bridges Falling Down, 
The ditty does play an important part of the plot, though. It was presumably chosen as that song was in public domain. I mean, why let money get in the way of a catchy, almost infuriatingly repetitive music jingle? The shoot began mostly in the coastal town of Lolita in California, with a milk bottling plant featuring as the Silver Shamrock factory. Principal photography went pretty much without a hitch, with a universal feeling of satisfaction towards Wallace's direction and approachability. Some of the way things happened, though, were quite unexpected, like the aforementioned scene where Chalice throws the mask onto a camera. Tommy Lee Wallace himself had thrown it at the camera playfully and caught it on his first go, so he assumed it would be an easy feat. It was not so for Tom Atkins, who played Chalice, as he tried unsuccessfully around 40 times before he finally got it right. Another oddity was the effect of the androids bleeding, which was achieved using orange juice, of all things. Garn Stevens, who played Marge, was also unwilling to wear the gruesome prosthetic of when her face is burned into, so that scene was achieved using a body double. Both Atkins and Stacey Nelkin, who played Ellie, were flabbergasted when it seemed that the first scene to be shot was them making love in bed while at the motel. Due to a combination of bad timing and a quicker-than-expected casting of Nelkin, the two barely got to be acquainted before having to perform the scene, leading to some rather humorous takes where the couple were finding it hard not to giggle. In a sharp contrast, Tom Atkins also caught pneumonia whilst filming, which I'm sure was no laughing matter. According to Atkins in interviews, there were also several endings to the film that were shot, but the only one that became publicly known was actually not that different to what features in the final frame. The same thing occurs, but instead of music playing over the closing credits, a disturbing cacophony of children screaming in pain was to be heard, signalling that Cochrane's master plan had finally worked. Wallace decided against using it, though, to make the ending seem more ambiguous. Like a trick-or-treater's takings of a Halloween night, Halloween 3 is a rather bonkers mixed bag of candy. There's no denying that the film is no more or less well-made than that of its predecessors, both technically and characteristically. Our main protagonists are both likeable, while the villainous characters are suitably dark yet cheesy. Other characters are just clearly fodder, in the traditional slasher sense, but the threat here is very far removed from a mere indestructible killer. Connell Cochrane is using Halloween masks to enact a deadly return to the original Celtic origins of All Hallows' Eve, threatening to sacrifice all the children to honour the old traditions and bring the past back to life. While the plot point of having a piece of Stonehenge stolen and brought over to the States makes you want to facepalm hard, mainly because of its ludicrous similarity to a plot detail of Troll 2, the idea of murdering children en masse via an innocent Halloween mask is genuinely creepy and disturbing, though in a goosebumps slash Twilight Zone sort of fashion. Ghoulish and dark, yes, but rather silly and pointless at the same time. I mean, what on earth is the end game? What does Cochrane do the next year? I mean, what does he gain exactly from it all? Of course, this logic is kind of thrown out the window when Cochrane first responds to Chalice's same question with, do I need a reason? With that in mind, it's simpler and just more entertaining to entertain the notion that he simply wants to kill kids because. Using a virtually indestructible army of androids and magically enhanced fragments of stone to achieve this only adds to the rapidly spiralling madness of the events that we see on screen. Cochrane's actions, though, could be seen as a deeper reaction to the commercialisation of holidays. In his dislike for children, he wishes to turn the idea of Halloween against them, punishing them for simply reducing an ancient tradition of sacrifice to donning silly masks and begging for candy. In his bid to do so, he removes all actual humans from the factory and has them replaced with soulless androids, 
unwilling to allow human workers to perpetuate capitalism in his own private world, which is also seems to be the reason why he gives so many of the masks away for free in the film. He's not interested in making money, merely intent on seeking more cosmic aspirations by replacing his workforce with robots and using the power of witchcraft to dominate the world. In a slightly hypocritical but knowingly ironic way, he twists commercial products into a danger for all those he abhors, turning a very popular Halloween mask into a weapon against the very consumers who mindlessly purchase them. His objective is as anti-capitalist and anti-consumerism as it is maniacal and psychotic. Even the film's designer of the masks likens them to a symbol of America's growing fascination with products and consumer culture. He muses about the idea that masks often reflect a culture's most inner feelings about their society, and expresses a worrying fact that horror-themed masks are the most popular that they've ever been. The fact that the admittedly cute masks in the film are mass-produced and are incredibly easy to get hold of, yet they dissolve your face into a mass of reptiles and insects, may comment on the idea of you get what you pay for, and continually decreasing quality in favour of more company profits. But there's nothing really that's spelled out in terms of subtext about the film. It's interesting nonetheless, considering Cochrane's portrayal is so hammy, that you'd almost miss any deeper meaning to his mad plan. The film is enjoyable, as long as you banish any thought of Michael Myers anyway. The plot is very silly, but for a film set on Halloween, it is deliciously apt for the season, and it's enjoyably dark too. The fleeting moments of gore are surprising more than gruesome, with more science fiction elements like lasers, decay, insects and snakes being involved. Even a decapitation manages to look rather odd, with a much more watery blood spatter than we're used to. Nonetheless, if you can get past the sometimes clunky plot and the absence of one of our favourite killers, you could do far worse than this entertaining little jack-in-the-box. Unless, of course, you scorched the earth well and truly in 1982 when it disappointed you for the first time. Main protagonist, Dan Chalice, is played by actor Tom Atkins, who's quite the cult star for many reasons. When I was younger, I always mixed him up with Tom Skerritt because they look similar, they have similar names, and there's Poltergeist 3 too, which confused me as to which number 3 which guy was in. Some of his past work was the TV movie Tranchulas, The Deadly Cargo, John Carpenter's The Fog and Escape from New York, Night of the Creeps, Lethal Weapon, Maniac Cop, and much later, the remake of My Bloody Valentine. Interestingly, Atkins was married to Garn Stevens, who played the unfortunate Marge. Stacey Nelkin, who played Ellie, had previously been in Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Colour, and she went on to appear in Yellowbeard and Bullets Over Broadway. The eccentric Cochrane was played by Dan O'Herlihy, and he was an Irish-born actor who's rather recognisable for his cult film appearances and his distinctive voice. One of his past works included 1962's The Cabinet of Caligari, and subsequent to Halloween 3, he was in The Last Starfighter, the first two Robocop films, which were arguably his most well-known role as the old man, and then he also starred in David Lynch's Twin Peaks as Andrew Packard. Michael Curry played Rafferty, the motel owner. He'd also been in the video nasty Dead and Buried from Gary Sherman, Airplane 2, the sequel, and G.I. Jane. Nancy Keyes, who played Annie in Halloween 1 and 2, makes a minor appearance as Chalice's wife Linda. She was also in The Fog and Assault on Precinct 13, both of which were directed by John Carpenter. The Vagrant was played by Jonathan Terry, who's probably more recognisable as Colonel Glover from the Return of the Living Dead films. 
Al Berry played the ill-fated Harry Grimbridge, and he'd later appear in Stuart Gordon's Reanimator and The Last Starfighter. In another very small part, the nurse who's working with Chalice in the hospital was played by Maidy Norman, who played the role of Elvira in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Even though Michael Myers doesn't return per se, Dick Warlock, who played the iconic killer in Halloween 2, returns as the assassin who kills Harry in the film's opening. Warlock was actually a stunts person and an actor who's worked in a variety of movies, like Firestarter, Inner Space, Escape from New York, The Thing, Body Double, When a Stranger Calls, Christine, Friday the 13th Part 5, Commando, Big Trouble in Little China, and also The Running Man. Finally, Chalice's son Willie was played by Joshua John Miller, who'd later produce and write 2015's The Final Girls, as well as make an appearance in 2007's remake of The Wizard of Gore. And while they don't appear on screen, there are also two voice-only roles of interest. One was the announcer on the Silver Shamrock adverts, which was played by director Tommy Lee Wallace, and another was the curfew announcer in Santa Mira, played by none other than Jamie Lee Curtis, who played the legendary Laurie Strode in the first two instalments. Director Tommy Lee Wallace has a relatively small cache of films under his directorial belt, but a few memorable ones too. He started out as a production designer and editor on John Carpenter's Halloween and The Fog, but he soon branched out into both writing and directing. Halloween 3 was his debut, but he went on to Fright Night Part 2, the original TV miniseries Stephen King's It, and more recently Vampires Los Murtos, the sequel to John Carpenter's Vampires. Wallace wrote the film with John Carpenter, who also returned to do the film's computerised, eerie soundtrack. The film had quite a few producers too, such as Barry Bernardi, who also produced The Fog, Escape from New York, Halloween 2, Christine, Poltergeist 3, a slew of the Amityville movies, the remake of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and more recently he's produced Adam Sandler movies, like Grown Ups 1 and 2, Jack and Jill, and Pixels. Another was Deborah Hill, who was Carpenter's partner on Halloween 1 and 2, and his other films. Another, Joseph Wolfe, worked on Hell Knight, Halloween 2, the original Nightmare on Elm Street, and more recently, the much-maligned Children of the Living Dead, and the gay slasher film Hellbent. Another was Erwin Yablans, whom we've covered before when we covered the first two Halloween films. And another was Mustafa Akkad, the famous producer who kept with the Halloween series throughout its entire lifespan, until his death in 2005. Finally, there was Dino De Laurentiis, a very prolific chap whom we've covered on Halloween too. Carpenter was assisted on the music side by Alan Howarth, who'd worked on Escape from New York, Christine, Big Trouble in Little China, Halloween 4 and 5, They Live, The Dentist 1 and 2, and also Rob Zombie's remake of Halloween 2. He also worked on countless films as a sound effects guy, on stuff like The Thing, Gremlins and The Running Man. Dean Cundy, the cinematographer who worked on the first two Halloween films, returns on this one too while the makeup artist who worked on My Bloody Valentine, John Logan, worked on the strange grisly effects of this film. Notably, the assistant director of this film, Scott Thaler, had worked on the video Nasty Dead and Buried, and subsequently became a production manager on some major films, like True Lies, the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still, Captain Phillips, Project Almanac, and even Black Panther. 
The other special effects of the film were done by William Aldridge, who went on to The Goonies, Die Hard, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, Kindergarten Cop, Demolition Man, Jingle All the Way, Liar Liar, and The Fifth Element. And lastly, there was John G. Bellew, who went on to The Goonies and Jingle All the Way, but also onto The Exterminator 2, Tango and Cash, and George of the Jungle. Halloween 3 opened in US theatres in October of 1982, but it became the lowest grossing entry in the series at that time. It was quickly overtaken by the competition, such as Friday the 13th Part 3 and Poltergeist. The critics, too, also gave the film scathing reviews, mostly due to Michael Myers' omission. Roger Ebert put it onto his most hated list, whilst others made comments like Halloween 3 manages the not easy feat of being anti-children, anti-capitalism, anti-television and anti-Irish all at the same time, and branding the film a hopelessly jumbled mess. It fared no better in the UK where the cinema goers left the film cold and without much support. It was completely uncut in its cinema exhibition, so you'd think that its VHS release would also be. But you'd be wrong though. Thorn EMI released the film in 1984 during the middle of the Nasties scare, where they were in legal troubles for their release of Suspiria and The Burning. Halloween 3 is notable as the first casualties of the era in a phenomenon known as panic cutting, with Thorn EMI cautiously pre-cutting the material themselves, hoping that the product would not catch the attention of the police and the authorities. It was cut by a whopping 2 minutes and 6 seconds by Thorny M.I., to Harry's nose breaking, the vagrant being decapitated, Marge's face emitting a bug after being lasered, the coroner's death by drill, and the majority of the cut for family's demise via snakes and bugs. It remained in this cut version throughout the remainder of the 80s and 90s, until it was finally released on cut in 2000. Beware the 2002 DVD release from Sanctuary Records, though. For some reason, it features a pre-edited print which omits parts of Harry's and Marge's death, and unfortunately, it seems the same version was released in 2011. You'd be better off then trying to source a version from the US or from Europe to make sure that you get the uncut copy. This is one of those instances where if the whole nasty thing didn't happen, we'd probably be able to watch full versions of films like this without any sort of issue. But alas, there you have it. Well, that's all I have to tell you about Halloween 3. As usual, I do hope you've enjoyed our episode, and I wish you the best Halloween this year. If you guys have any opinions on this particular entry, or the other film that we covered today, please do let me know on Twitter or Facebook. I'm quite passionate about this one, so I'd love to hear what other people think. As for Nasty Pasty itself, we're back on Friday anyway with our Slashes with a Twist episode, covering Sleepaway Camp and April Fool's Day, so please don't miss it. Until then, happy Halloween, and for God's sake, stop the commercial. Stop it! Stop it!